0: We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Sitting in today for Dr. Reamer is Dennis Jones from Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. Today we welcome Terry Fletcher to talk about how the OIG is getting under the skin of some dermatologists. Chen and DeConda will discuss the challenges coders and auditors face working from home. It's a segment we're calling, wait for it, Homework. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has important news in the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report and Tim Powell is at the Tuesday news desk. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and the man who's living La Vida Loca, Chuck Buck.
1: Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 466 live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Dennis Jones.
2: Good morning, Chuck. Hello, everyone.
1: Dennis, thanks for sitting in this morning for Dr. Erica Reamer. Great to have you back with us.
2: Thanks, Chuck. Whenever you invite me back to Talk 10 Tuesday, I feel excited, like we're getting the band (laughs) back together. It is a true (laughs) pleasure to be back with you and the ICD-10 Tuesday family this morning.
1: This morning, we're going to be talking about the OIT work plan, and I'm sure that as the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore-Nayak you're probably very much aware of the OIG work plan.
2: Oh, yeah, I've heard of that.
1: Well, it turns out that the OIG is getting under the skin as a dermatologist.
2: That sounds like an old song by that New Jersey boy, Frank Sinatra. (laughs) I've got you under my skin.
1: Well, this has to do with the misuse of Modifier 25. The OIG is auditing claims for E&M services. Terry Fletcher joins us later in the broadcast to report this developing story.
2: And Shannon DeConda returns with a story your writers are calling homework.
1: Evidently, if you're a coder or an auditor working for home, there are some challenges as well as some advantages. Sam's going to report on how to bring home practicality into the coding and auditing world.
2: And you have another gig, right? That's right. MedLearn
1: has asked Dr. Reimer and me to co-host three live broadcasts during the IPPS Summit in August.
2: That's when Lori Johnson will conduct three webcasts on the 2022 IPPS final rule.
1: And Eric and I are going to be hosting the pre- and the post-webcast slides. There's going to be more information, but everyone be sure to put us on your calendar now for August 17th, 18th, and 19th.
2: Now, moving forward on today's Talk 10 Tuesday, we have Laurie Johnson with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report.
1: And you have a point of view segment today. What are you going to be talking about?
2: There's another old New Jersey boy named Bruce Springsteen who sang a song about the glory days. Today, I'm lamenting the passing of the glory days for America's hospitals.
1: We have much news to report and begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday
0: News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell.
3: Thanks, Chuck. When I was a young cub in healthcare, Medicare performed audits of all teaching hospitals. These audits were designed to create rates to remove the last pass-through rates for the last big item that was paid under cost reimbursement, the cost of training graduate medical education interns and residents. For those who don't know, Medicare is the largest funder of graduate medical education in the country. In what would become a boom for teaching hospitals and universities, starting in 1997, Medicare would pay two types of payments to teaching hospitals first, Medicare would pay its share of direct cost. It would compute that by computing an average per resident amount, or APRA, from a base period. Then the total reimbursable cost would be computed by taking that amount times the number of full-time residents. And finally, Medicare would determine its portion based on the number of Medicare days divided by total patient days. In addition, Medicare would pay an additional indirect medical education payment because, in theory, the residents made the rendering of care more expensive. This would be computed by taking a ratio of the number of residents to the number of available beds in the hospital. In both computations, the number of residents would be limited to the number of residents counted on the hospital's 1997 Medicare cost report. In completely insane Medicare fashion, these caps have not materially changed in 25 years. As programs grew and programs shrank or closed, the number of hospitals were continued to be capped at the 1997 limit, and the ones who were capped continue to grow. Currently, on Medicare cost reports across the country, over 78,000 residents are accounted for the above computations, and the total over-the-cap amount across the country is over 16,000. In January, Medicare announced it was raising the cap on the number of residents used to compute payments to teaching hospitals. The cap would be raised by 1,000 residents at a rate of 200 per year. There is currently a bill in Congress raising the caps by 17000 It seems a larger discussion to be had is whether or not the current payment mechanism is fair or should Medicare pay teaching hospitals so much for training residents at the cost of cutting payments to non-teaching hospitals. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim. Very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an IC10 Monitor National correspondent. It's Tuesday, It's June twenty second. It's National Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. So today, the vaccination rate for those who have been fully vaccinated in the United States now stands at forty five point seven percent. You're listening to Talk Ten Tuesday. Stand by.
0: If CPT and HICPIC modifiers are confusing your coders, billers, or auditing staff, there's an important ICD-10 Monitor webcast that will deliver the clarity you need to protect your payments and ensure compliance. Prominent coding and compliance authority Maggie Gamble walks you through the modifiers applicable to hospital outpatient use based on guidance from CMS and the American Medical Association. The presentation includes clinical scenarios to reinforce keen concepts and differentiate one modifier from another, and Maggie helps you problem-solve challenges, such as when to appropriately use Modifier 59 instead of an X-Modifier. Gain the knowledge you need to master CPT and HCPCS modifier assignments to help avoid payment denials and noncompliance. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore for this important on-demand webcast.
1: Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Lori also has a Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey. Good morning, Lori.
4: Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Dennis. And hello to our listeners. Today's coding topic is about getting back to basics. Coders love to memorize codes, but the transition to ICD-10-CM has made that somewhat difficult. In 2004, I developed mnemonics for the ICD-10 chapters. We added a new chapter last year, so I made a revision. Here are the ICD-10 chapters and the associated mnemonics. Chapter 1 begins with letters A and B, and it represents parasitic and infectious diseases, and the mnemonic is advancing bugs. Chapter 2 is C and D. Neoplasm is the chapter, and the mnemonic is cancer and death. Chapter 3 begins with D, and it is diseases of the blood and blood-forming organs, and the mnemonic is Dracula. Chapter 4 begins with E, Endocrine, Nutritional, and Metabolic Diseases, with a mnemonic of endocrine. Chapter F, which is Chapter 5, is Mental, Behavioral, and Neurodevelopmental Disorders, and the mnemonic is Freud. Chapter 6, the G codes, Diseases of the Nervous System, and I use a little literary license with the word jittery beginning with the letter G. Chapter 7 are H codes, diseases of the eye with the mnemonic of hyphema. Chapter 8 is the rest of the H codes, are the diseases of the ear and mastoid process with the mnemonic of hearing. Chapter 9 is disease of the circulatory system, infarction is the mnemonic. Chapter 10, the J codes, respiratory system, and it's just gasping. Chapter 11, K codes, diseases of the digestive system with a mnemonic of not in stomach. Chapter 12, the L codes, diseases of skin and subcutaneous tissue, the lipoma. Chapter 13, M codes, diseases of the musculoskeletal system, musculoskeletal. Chapter 14, N codes, diseases of the genitourinary system with a mnemonic of nocturia. Chapter 15, um, the O codes, pregnancy, childbirth, and purpurium with a mnemonic of obstetrics. Chapter 16, P codes, certain conditions arising in the perinatal period, and the mnemonic is perinatal, Chapter 17 are the Q codes, congenital malformations, deformations, and chromosomal abnormalities with the mnemonic of QUIRKY. Chapter 18, the R code, signs, symptoms, and abnormal clinical and lab findings, relative symptoms, it's a mnemonic. We're almost done. Chapter 19, the S&T codes for injury and poisoning, and it's simply traumatic. Chapter 20, V, W, X, and Y codes for the external causes and the mnemonics, and there's four of them here, vehicle, whoops, exposure, and Y. Chapter 21, the Z codes, factors influencing health status and its zero problems. Chapter 22 are the U codes, um, and these are codes for special purposes, and it is the new chapter with the mnemonic of unusual. In an article posted today, I added a new twist by associating pictures with each mnemonic. So today's listener survey is, have you memorized ICD-10 codes? And we're looking for ICD-10-CM, and you can answer A, yes, more than 20, B, yes, between 1 and 19, C, no, and D, does not apply or don't know. And we'll be back later to see the results.
2: Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson, Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions LLC.
1: If you're a coder or an auditor working from home, boy, there's some challenges as well as some advantages here now with our Talk 10 Tuesday. Focus what we call homework is Shannon DeCona. Good morning, Shannon.
5: Good morning, Mr. Chuck Bach. Happy Tuesday morning, everybody. And you know it's really interesting that Lori discussed mnemonics. This morning great minds think alike with our segments i'm coming to you live this morning from my home office located in merritt island Florida. And if you're not familiar with where that is you're not the first but it's actually five miles from Kennedy space Center, which is 40 miles southeast of Orlando. I moved into my home office about eight years ago after leaving our corporate office uh, doctors management in Knoxville Tennessee and learning to work in a home environment was difficult. While it sounds romantic and amazing, it really took some getting used to for somebody very social like myself. Many in the healthcare industry have found themselves having to find a rhythm in a home-based office, learning to have their pupper for a water cooler talk buddy. So today I thought we might have a little fun with this session and think of ways our home office might inspire and assist us with our daily task. Let me give you an example. When teaching the recent 2021 AMA guidelines, uh, AMA published a list of approved time-based reportable tasks. So at our our virtual conference for NamUs, I made a complete sentence using these tasks to make it easy to remember what AMA approved as those tasks. And here's the sentence. As the provider prepares, He reviews the history, performs the exam, and counsels the patient, family, all while creating orders, interpreting results, and making appropriate referrals, and having provider level communication with others about the patient, all in an effort to ensure ongoing patient health and safety through patient management. Okay, maybe it's a bit of a run on sentence, but it does the job right it explains everything that's included in time based services, so I had this thought of maybe we could use things around the, the house to do similar associations to help us with documentation improvement right so well, if you know me at all, you know, I have three dogs, my husband and I volunteer to rescue and as a matter of fact. Our dog Goose has a makeshift desk that sits right beside us daily um, and he sits here and works with us when I'm in town anyway. So DOG had to be one of the associations we used. So if you know DOG explains great the new documentation guidelines. D, a description of the patient. O, objectively evaluate the patient G, of course, it's the game plan to treat the patient. So it's this new way of using a sort of acronym to help the provider remember better what we're looking for in documentation. Yeah, there's a soap note, there's documentation guidelines, but sometimes being original creates and triggers a better memory. And that helps lock and seal in learning in different ways. So let's do one more. What about bed? You know, it's where you like to go at the end of the day. Some of you may have said bar, but let's just use bed because that'll be more adult appropriate for all people listening today. So bed, Um, early to bed, early to rise, right? Bed. B, brief description of the current problem. E, examine clinically appropriate. D, diagnose and treat. So as we look at using these different elements around the house, only when it's an appropriate audience, we have this ability to bring common household, use your place to create a different learning environment. Here's the thing for a long time, many of us hid the idea we work from home. Dying if you heard a noise in the background that gave away the idea that we were working at home. So I'm encouraging you to consider when appropriate seize the opportunity to shake it up use your environment to your benefit in training, but again, remember to choose wisely when to engage this feedback style. Look for, this expanded in, look for these ideas expanded into a full article to be released this week. There'll be more analogies to come. And Dennis, how does anyone disagree that a dog is not man and woman's best friend?
2: I don't think you can disagree. Shannon, next time I'm doing a crossword and there's a three-letter word that starts with B, your favorite place, I, I'm going to have to flip a coin for bed or bar. So... Um, <laughs> That was Shannon Takanda, the founder of Namos, the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists. Chuck?
1: Coming up the revealing results of today's Talk In Tuesday Listener Survey, and then later in this broadcast, do you feel the urge to itch? Terry Fletcher might have the answer. Stand by
0: Could your clinical documentation and integrity program be painting a distorted picture of patient acuity? The problem may be key performance indicators, KPIs, and benchmarking that have not kept up with the times. In many instances, the reliance on traditional industry standards and benchmarks has resulted in CDI becoming an assembly line of queries. Conversely, hospitals may be underreporting the acuity of their patient populations by 20 to 30 percent. You can do better. Start by attending an ICD-10 monitor webcast. Revenue cycle expert Robin Sewell will deconstruct CDI to help you achieve more accurate benchmarks and choose severity reporting. Register now to attend CDI Deconstructed, achieving more accurate benchmarks. The webcast is Wednesday, June 30th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern.
1: Here now with the results of today's Talked In Tuesday Listener Survey is Lori Johnson.
4: Hello, Chuck, and the results are very interesting. For A, yes, more than 20 codes, we have 24% of our overachieving audience. And B, yes, between 1 and 19, we have 44%. C, no, 22%. And D, does not apply or don't know, it's 10%. And for those people that are in answer C, no, I'll give you one, which is I-10, for hypertension. That's pretty easy.
1: Terry Fletcher joins us now to report our lead story as to why the OIG is getting under the skin of some dermatologists.
6: Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. As soon as the pandemic started winding down in 2020, the HHS OIG came back in full force with audits. Now into 2021, the OIG work plan has many items of note, that seem to be focusing on e services. One in particular is the April 2021 notification targeting dermatologist claims for ENM and ENM services on the same day as a minor surgical procedure. This confused me as it came out of left field, so I did a little research, and yes, there is a rule in the NCCI Manual for Medicare Services, Chapter 1, pages 16 to 17, where it states, in general, e services performed on the same date of a service as a minor surgical procedure are included in the payment for the procedure. However, a significant and separate identifiable E&M unrelated to the decision to perform the minor surgical procedure is separately reportable with a 25 modifier. It says it doesn't require different diagnoses, but it does say if a minor surgical procedure is performed on a new patient, the same rules for reporting E&M services apply. The fact that the patient is new to the provider is not sufficient alone to justify reporting an E&M service on the same date as a minor surgical procedure. This rule has always been soft, should we say, not really enforced, especially as it relates to new patient visits on the same day as minor surgical procedures. Most dermatologists and general practice physicians see patients for skin lesions and removals on the same date as an e and service frequently. If a new patient comes in for an encounter for a complaint about a sus- suspicious lesion, a skin lesion marker growth, the physician does a complete workup, usually a total body exam, they will take a history to determine if skin cancer runs in the family or if the patient has a personal history of skin eruptions or cancerous lesions. If they find a new lesion or skin tag that needs to be removed, they'll provide that service on the same date if there's time. I'm trying to understand why Medicare would even have this policy. For example, a destruction of lesion, CPT code 17,000, for an actinic keratosis or a premalignant lesion has an allowable of about $67. If your physician also billed for a new patient office visit, a 99203, they would have also received $113, give or take. However, this CCI direction states that the office visit should not be billed at the same encounter as the minor procedure. The OIG work plan states in 2019, about 56% of dermatologist claims with an ENM service also included minor surgical procedures, such as lesion removals, destructions, and biopsies on the same day. This may indicate abuse where the provider used a 25 modifier to bill Medicare for a significant and separately identifiable E&M service when only a minor surgical procedure and related pre-op or post-operative service are supported by the beneficiary's medical record. And then it says, we will determine whether dermatologist claims for E&M services on the same date of the service as a minor surgical procedure complied with Medicare requirements. What concerns me for dermatology practices here is that the last sentence of the OIG alert is vague. We will determine, are there medical professionals that are making that determination of medical necessity for the e service? What if other diagnoses were addressed during the ENM encounter, but the primary diagnosis submitted was for the skin procedure? Is this rule encouraging providers not to evaluate the patient prior to a minor surgical procedure, or is it saying, let's waste the patient's time by rescheduling them to return for another visit? Taking this a step further, minor procedures as described by CCI policy manual, so zero to 10-day global procedures. So who's next? Gastroenterologists with colonoscopies on the same day as an e general surgeons with incisional breast biopsies on the same day as an e or how about a radiologist that needs to have a counseling visit with a patient undergoing IV radiation therapy, all zero to 10-day minor procedures? I would encourage practices to pay close attention to the OIG work plan announcements, perform an internal review of any e services billed with a 25 modifier on the same day as a minor procedure, and determine whether you complied with Medicare rules. We can only anticipate this is just the beginning to replenish all of that provider relief funding that was pushed out in the last year. Then with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very much, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional coder, educator, and auditor Terry Fletcher. Be sure to read Terry's article in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. Now it's time for our guest co-host to tell us what's on their radar screen. It's a segment we call point of view here now is the
2: Administrator of
1: Patient Financial Services at Montefiore
2: Nyack Hospital, Dennis Jones. Thank you very much, Chuck. One of my favorite things to do uh, when visiting the medical centers in our health system is to look at the historic pictures in the lobby that chronicle the construction of the hospital. I don't think that there's a single hospital that hasn't been built in the last 10 years that has ever been built all at once. Hospitals are built incrementally. The original hospital usually looks like an old mansion or maybe a library, with a horse-drawn ambulance out front. Then little by little, the hospital grows, adding adding an emergency room, adding inpatient beds, building a connected professional center, expanding cancer services with a dedicated hospital wing. Pictures in the hospital lobby often tell the long, glorious story of the hospital's construction. Unfortunately, recent events are beginning to indicate that we are entering a new era, the era of hospital deconstruction. Forces are combining that will almost certainly result in the replacement of hospitals as the hub of healthcare delivery in the United States. Building incrementally, hospitals are being disassembled the same way. Selfishly, I first noticed that our hospitals were at risk when I saw our hospital jobs were targeted. Hospitals, most of which uh, operate on that thin dividing line between profit and loss, have long identified that supporting a robust revenue cycle organization requires a major investment in the department's human capital. The desire to reduce labor costs associated with the revenue cycle leads to outsourcing functions, such as aged receivables collection, specialty billing like international patients and workers' compensation, and the coding of medical records. Outsourcing the entire billing office, human resources, and payroll uh, can also be valuable, Outsourcing of self pay billing and customer services, two of the most valuable services that a hospital provides from a community relations standpoint, are often the first targets for outsourcing because of costs associated with printing and mailing statements and maintaining a call center with extended hours. Medical records coding has become a primary target for outsourcing because medical records coding requires a high level of specific skills and the use of expensive technology Hospitals can find it, number one, hard to find enough coding staff, and, number two, expensive to train, uh, to train employ, and retain good coders. The net savings after, hospital, after agency fees associated with outsourcing revenue cycle functions is estimated to be about $50,000 per FTE per year. These savings can be even higher if the, if the outsourcing includes offshoring. Outsource coding agencies who may hire part-time workers without benefits or labor from parts of the world where the cost of living is substantially lower can often promise that they will code more charts more accurately for less money. I've recommended to my kids, my neighbor's kids, and anyone else that would listen that if they were going to consider a hospital career, they should only consider hands-on patient care careers. My daughter, who otherwise rarely listens to my advice, is now a doctor of physical therapy working at a hospital in Hawaii. But time and profit motives are apparently making this advice seem short-sighted. Insurance payers, citing the spiraling cost of health care, while many of these payers are announcing record profits with each successive quarter, have decreased inpatient volumes by denying inpatient admissions for virtually every service. After decreasing admissions and inpatient days, these insurance payers such as Blue Cross, United Healthcare, and Aetna, are using aggressive steerage tactics through narrow networks and site-of-care authorizations to move outpatient services out of hospital environments. In its 2021 OPPS final rule, CMS announced uh, that it will eliminate the inpatient-only list of 1,700 procedures over a three-year period starting in 2021, This will allow services, because of their complexity, that could only be done in a hospital inpatient setting to be done in either a hospital inpatient, hospital outpatient, or even in a freestanding ambulatory surgical uh, setting. For-profit insurance companies have taken the lead from CMS, and as always, they've taken it up a notch. If CMS announces that they will penalize hospitals for experiencing higher-than-average 30-day readmissions the insurance companies immediately announced that they will follow CMS's lead and stop paying for any readmissions that occur within 30 days of another inpatient stay. Now, patients who thought that they could go to their local hospitals or to an academic medical center for complicated or very serious health care issues find that they cannot get authorization for these services from their insurance companies. Hospitals with contracts with these insurance companies for these outpatient services now find that they must pass another layer of authorization the site of care authorization. The physicians seeking authorization for radiology services, outpatient non-invasive diagnostic procedures, simple surgeries must justify why the service needs to be provided in a hospital setting instead of a doctor's office or an independent for-profit ambulatory center. Last week, United Healthcare announced that it plans to move 55% of all outpatient surgeries and radiology procedures out of hospitals by 2030. Adding insult to this injury, United Healthcare has announced a policy that will decrease or deny payments for patients who they consider non-emergency, um, regardless of the fact that hospitals are required by EMTALA to provide care to all patients who come to their emergency room. It is true that hospital services are more expensive than care delivered in a doctor's office or an ambulatory center. The biggest reason is the cost for treating the very, very sick and injured patients that hospitals serve in their emergency rooms, their ICUs, and neonatal intensive care units. Since no payer, especially government payers, Medicare and Medicaid, pay anywhere near the cost of providing care for these most needy of patients, hospitals cover the costs incurred by the very sick by making a little margin on patients who are receiving more routine care. If you take these low-acuity patients and the margins, margins that they provide, Uh, out of the equation, the hospital equation does not balance. When payers refuse to pay for diagnostic services and non-life-threatening services at hospitals and don't exponentially increase the payment for high-acuity services and procedures, the hospitals will collapse. It seems simple and inevitable. Now, I have been working in and around hospitals for a couple of decades. I hope I will not see the day when they lock the door and turn off the lights at my hospital. But those of you that are much younger than me might start to consider a career move to ambulatory care. It certainly seems that ambulatory care centers are a much more secure place uh, for the future. But, you know, I read an article recently that said the new CVS health hubs plan to do sleep studies, and Walmart is determining if it's feasible to open radiology services in their stores, as well as primary care clinics, labs, and dental services. So there's always my career plan C which centers around landscaping work and buying lottery tickets. On that optimistic note, I return the mic to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Dennis, very much. What a fascinating story. Thank you again. That's going to be a wrap for our 466 live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and I want to thank our panelists today. Shannon Aconda, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell. Terry Fletcher, who reported our lead story, and my good pal Dennis Jones. Dennis is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. And one more thing before we go, when we're not on the air, you can always listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Tuck 10 Tuesday and ICD 10
0: Monitor. Have a productive week, everybody, and thanks for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.